I wish when I was a lot younger, someone had taken the time to teach me the principles of this passage that we're going to be studying. There are so many questions that it raises and answers that are so foundational to a lot of other things in the Christian life. So if you're visiting with us, you get a pass. But regular people, it's another Sunday morning where I'm asking you to think as you listen, all right? These are great words from John chapter 6, verses 60 to 71. And I think you'll see once we get into it that, yeah, this, there are questions here that need answering. And John helps us if we do the work. The title is, The Power of Responding or Not Responding to God's Drawing Grace. The Power of Responding or Not Responding to God's Drawing Grace. John 6, 60 to 71. You with me? When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? This is his disciples, not pagans. This is a hard saying. How do you even listen to stuff like this? That's what they're saying to each other. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling, about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him, 65. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. That's a pretty clear statement. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So people that have been following him, listening to him, uh, watching the miracles that he performed, So so these were people that were following Jesus. And because of this, some of the things Jesus said, they just said, I'm not following you anymore. Off they go. That's, That's significant. So Jesus said to the 12, 67, do you want to go away too? So he assumes, he says the Father draws just a few verses earlier, and yet he assumes that his own disciples can choose to walk away if they want to. Otherwise, that question makes no sense. Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. There's a, you can't help but feel there's kind of a dark side, a dark underbelly to this text. You you can't help but feel that there's a corner that's being turned. The Jesus story isn't a fairy tale with a 
happy ever after kind of storyline. We see reactions in this text. We see reactions of unbelief, reactions of desertion, reactions of rebellion. His own disciples, his own disciples grumbling, 61, that's the word. They were miffed. They were, quotes, offended, 61. They're offended by the same Lord they had helped feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. And they loved it then. Now they're offended. Everyone wanted to crown Jesus king back then. Remember, he had to escape because they wanted to take him by force and make him king. John said that. Many, the text says, 66, many of these same people, now they're giving up on Jesus. It says, quotes, no longer walked with him, 66. So, we need to pay attention to that. Deconstructing disciples are repeatedly predicted and are not a new phenomena. They happened in John's day and they happen today. So John pulls back the veil on the inner sorrow of Jesus with our Lord's amazing uh, questions in 66 and 67. Are you leaving me too? Is everyone turning away from me? It's Jesus. Is, there, is everybody going? Is nobody staying with me? It's an honest question. Jesus at least seems to be entertaining the genuine possibility that those whose selection had been a matter of all-night prayer before he chose the 12, that they might simply give up on him. Now, whatever theology... Calvinistic, Arminian, or a combination of the two, whatever theology you bring to the text, Jesus does not assume that their continued faithfulness is a given, or he wouldn't have said, are, are you leaving me too? He said that to Peter, and James, and John. Are, are you leaving me? We can't imagine, I don't think, the heartbreak in Jesus as he as he actually asks his closest followers whether or not they're going to stay with him. That's where we are today in this study. You can't just ignore these tough verses. This is miles removed from the accolades of the wonder seekers who saw Jesus perform miracles. It's all right here at this seemingly low point that we can find some of the most fruitful principles of study if you dig for them. So here we go, point number one. Faith must rest down on an accurate understanding of the words of Jesus Christ. This is really important. It's basic. The disciples are having a hard time with Jesus because they think they have his edgy words right, but they don't. So, so we see here what happens when we misunderstand Jesus' words. Watch it happen in the text. It's in 60 to 63. I hope I've got it. It's in 60 to 63. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? 
But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken are spirit and they are life. Now, John doesn't say, he doesn't specifically identify which of Jesus' words were the words the disciples couldn't listen to. All we get from John is this complaint in verse 60. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But it's not hard to see, it's not hard to see which saying they're talking about. There, I'm with you now. Probably they were thinking of these words from Jesus. Jesus said to them, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Yikes. That's the stuff they... they, they this is a hard saying. How do you listen to this? And Jesus, seeing their confusion, he kind of searches their hearts with another question that doesn't seem related, but it is. He asks them another question about the future. He says, do you take offense at this? Is this really bugging you, all the things I'm saying about eating my flesh and drinking my blood? Then, if that's the case, there's a time word, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words, he says, it's not, it's not eating and drinking flesh and blood. It's his words that I have spoken to you, their spirit and their life. And, and immediately, if we're really following closely, we want to ask, what does, what does the ascension have to do with the disciples being offended about eating his flesh and drinking his blood? Why does Jesus bring up the ascension? Why introduce it right here? And the answer to that question is linked to Jesus' second comment about his words being spirit and life. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying they're not hearing his words properly. He's saying, I'm not introducing cannibalism when I talk about eating my flesh and drinking my blood. We looked at those verses in detail last week. Jesus is explaining, not literally eating flesh and blood, but he's talking about the ingestion of his words and his life, not physical eating. And to make that point even more strongly, he asks if they would still be offended if they saw his physical body ascending to the Father right before their eyes. Because that kind of physical ascension, here's the connection, it would be impossible if Jesus had actually asked them to eat his flesh and drink his blood. You see the connection? Jesus says, I'm not talking about that. In fact, you're going to see this physical body of mine ascend up into heaven. So he's trying to straighten out their thinking. And here's 
what that has to do with you. Because maybe it's hard to see that connection real fast. It's easy to take offense or to brush off lightly something in our Bible study and the words of Jesus simply because we we haven't taken enough time to think them through to a correct understanding. Sometimes our first impression from a text isn't the correct one. And so Jesus is quick to remind us this isn't just an intellectual problem. It's It's a life problem for all of us. We need this reminder because there's just this strong movement in a lot of evangelical churches. Let's keep everything light. Let's keep everything breezy. Leave the doctrine for the theologians. Give us simple, practical stuff. That's why Jesus feels the need to remind his listeners. He says, my words are worth lingering over because their spirit and their life. You might not see it right now, Don, but everything of my word here, meditate on it because there's life there. But you have to understand it properly. It's worth the work. It's worth the effort. Get into the book. Biblical truth is worth lingering over. Let me, let me just stay here for a second. Consider this. How many times in Bible studies, devotions, church services, times of personal reading, how many times do we need these words of Jesus re-spoken into our hearts? The words, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Are you just lumping these words in with all the words from the entertainment networks and the blogs of the celebrities? My words, Jesus says, aren't like those words. There's no life in those words. My words, the Spirit doesn't work through those words that you're seeing. Think deeply and carefully about what I say to you. This is true even in my tough words, true in my countercultural words that will get you called intolerant and narrow-minded. Stay with my words, their spirit and their life. And if you swap those words for something that's going to be easier, brighter, more culturally acceptable, you're losing life, Jesus says. You're not just losing facts. You're losing life. Do you spend as much time studying the Gospels? Do you spend as much time in the Gospels as you spend in Netflix? See, because those words aren't life. These words, they're life. They they get into you. They will change you in ways you can't even imagine, but you stay with it. Understand it. Dig, linger, ponder, meditate. My words are spirit and their life. We need to constantly be trained to do this with God's word. And here's why. Our world trains us to hear quickly and lightly. Messages are shorter and shorter. They're less and less complex. 
Our brains are oriented around sound bites and video games. Sermons are supposed to be short. Services need to be peppy and brief. And don't think that doesn't have an effect on the Christian community that's called to linger over a book with long sentences and paragraphs. Do you see where that happens? This isn't like a text. You know, they text somebody. That's what Jesus is laboring over. That's what he meant in John 6.27 when he said, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. All right, point number two. Jesus searches the appetites and ambitions of those who profess to believe in him. You can see it in 64 to 66. There are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who would not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come after me unless granted him by the Father. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. I wonder how this group of disciples reacted when they heard Jesus say, some of you don't believe. I mean, if I did that, just pretend that I did this and I walked through, pick this section right here, and I said, uh, you, you believe, you believe, you don't believe, you don't believe, you believe, you don't believe, you believe, you believe, you don't believe. Now, what might you want to ask me if I did that? Wouldn't you want to say, who, how, who, who are you? How, how do you know who believes and who doesn't believe? How do you know? What right do you have? I'm sure that's what we'd all be thinking. Quite right, in fact, to be thinking that. John means for us to notice that these Graciously revealing words of Jesus, they didn't bring about caution and repentance. People got ticked off. They were miffed. And then the text says that many, 66, many, not just Judas, many turned back and no longer walked with him. In other words, they quit following Jesus completely and permanently. They wanted nothing to do with him. How dare he question their sincerity? How dare he question, quotes, their truth? How could he be so judgmental? And by the way, just exactly how did Jesus determine sincerity of belief? How was he measuring when he said, 66, there are some of you who do not believe? What was he using to measure that? I mean, that's a tough question. What we know for sure is Jesus lays out Two issues in these verses. First, John tells us plainly that Jesus knew who were true believers and who weren't. He says that. He even knew, apparently, who was going to betray him. And this isn't the first time that John includes these ideas in his gospel account. 
John first alerts us to false belief in John 2, 22 and 23. Remember this? We studied this. When he, this is Jesus, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many, look, many believed in his name. When they saw the signs that he was doing. So they saw Jesus do miraculous things, and the text says, many believed in him. We need to study that because in our John 6 text, Jesus is saying, you people don't believe. So here, here's a whole bunch of people. John says they believed in him when they saw the miracles. But look, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Why? Well, because, there's the reason, he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knew the motives of those applauding crowds that he had performed miracles. They wanted to make him king. Jesus looked deep into their ambitions, their hopes. Some loved the multiplied bread, but they didn't like to hear about his broken, mutilated flesh and blood. There were false believers who talked about Jesus more than they wanted to obey Jesus. They liked seeing things done that met their needs, weren't crazy about taking up their cross to follow him. And the second thing we see here, Jesus reminds them only those drawn by the Father would come redemptively. Those are tough verses, but they're right there in 65. Is that up on the screen? Let's read it out loud together. And he said... This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. People could marvel at the works of Jesus without the drawing of the Father. They could be fascinated with Jesus without the drawing of the Father. But they couldn't come redemptively. They couldn't find eternal life without the Father's work. And I spent most of last Sunday morning, dealing with how the Father draws and how that drawing is related to our hearing and believing. But I want to just scratch into it for a one minute more. I think what happens is these two camps form. This camp over here says, you guys, you just think you can earn your salvation by works. This side over here just thinks that you know, God does everything and you don't have to decide and it's all done for you. And neither one really represents the other side very accurately, in my opinion. I want to look at this just one more time. If the only verse we had was 65, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. If that's the only verse we had in the Bible we could be excused for thinking that Father God just picks those he will draw and those who he won't draw. So in other words, the drawing could be taken as the only random factor in determining who is saved and who is lost. Except, except there are other passages that pick up this idea in 665 and flesh it out with more detail. And I want to look at one more today, if you'll bear with me. 
Look at Matthew 13, 10 to 16. Matthew 13, 10 to 16. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Does that sound fair to you? Twelve. For to the one who has more will be given, and he will have an abundance. From the one who has not, even what he has. Is that a contradiction right there? The one who has not, even what he has, will be taken away. This is why, 13, I speak to them in parables. Because seeing, they do not see. Hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. 14, indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. Why? 15, for this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears, they can barely hear. And their eyes, note, they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and I would heal them. That's what Jesus wants to do. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Now, it's easy to forget that the crowd didn't get this explanation of the parables from Jesus. You need to, you need to know that. The parable itself wraps up with these words of benediction from Jesus. They're in verse 9 of Matthew 13. He who has ears, let him hear. That's it. Sermon's over. People can go home. Jesus walks away. All the crowd hears is this story of the farmer planting his crops. That's all they get. And the question I want to ask is, how is anybody supposed to get saved from that if that's all they get? Would you or I have naturally come up with the exact explanation of Jesus to the disciples? Would we have come up with that on our own? I doubt it. So how fair is this? The disciples, those already following Jesus, they get the whole explanation, okay? The crowd, the ones that aren't following Jesus, they get no explanation. Is that how you do it? It seems to be all backwards. Look at that 11th verse. And he answered them, to you, that's the disciples, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, the unbelieving crowd, it's not been given. And then, here's the important part. 
So if you've been sleeping, wake up here. Jesus explains in detail what he only mentions briefly in chapter 6. He explains the mystery of the Father's drawing, and he links it permanently to the hearers of those drawn. Look at it just once more with me. To the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. Okay? From the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Okay, this is the disciples, the one who has. This is the crowd, the one who has not. Even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing, they don't see. Hearing, they don't hear. Nor do they understand. And it's all in that 12th verse. The one who has, more is given. He will have an abundance. The one who has not, even what he has, taken away. Now, don't miss. Everyone has something given, right? Right? The one who has, more will be given. The one who has not, even what he has, there's a has on both sides. The one who has gets more. The one who isn't using what he has, he get, even what he has is, is taken away. That's, that's what it says. But everybody has something, and everybody has that by grace. I take this to be exactly what John meant in John 1.9 when he said the true light, talking about Jesus, that gives light to how many people? to everyone that's coming into the world. John clearly says that everyone has been lit up by Jesus in some unexplained way. There's the revelation of the created world around us. There's the revelation of conscience, which Paul calls the law of God written on our hearts. God has done something in Christ that is, this is important, God has done something in Christ that is as broad in its effect as the sin of Adam is broad in its effect. How many people are affected by the fall? It's not a trick question. How many? So if I can show you from the Bible that Christ affects everyone just as much as Adam's sin, that would be a really important point. And you can see that in Romans 5.18. Therefore, as one trespass, which trespass is he talking about? Adam, right? As one trespass led to condemnation for how many men? So one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for how many? That's Paul saying, just as Everyone has been affected by Adam's sin. Everyone who has ever drawn a breath has been affected by Christ. He doesn't say they're all justified, but there's something that leads to justification. So the divine grace 
It's the key in Jesus' words, to him who has, more will be given. Everything is given. It's all from God. Nothing is earned. Nothing is deserved. All these words from Jesus are grace words. Nothing is earned. And what about the stuff this individual already has? To him who has, and to him who has not even what he has. Where did these people get what they have? It's all given. They don't earn it. They can't initiate it. They can't save themselves. They can't even start saving themselves. Everything is by grace. But here's the key. Grace given must become grace used. Would you say that sentence with me? Grace given must become grace used. And more grace is given as present grace is used. And grace is removed as eyes are closed and responses die. What do individuals do with this God-initiated, grace-filled drawing? That's the point. Jesus is expanding in Matthew 13, and it relates to how much more grace people will receive. For to the one who has more will be given, he will have an abundance. To the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Why don't the crowds get the explanation of the parable that Jesus gives the disciples? What's Jesus doing? What you're witnessing is 1312. It's being taken away. It's being taken away. Why? Deck says they've shut their eyes. <laughs> they've closed their ears. They don't want to hear. They don't want to respond. So what's happening? Grace is being drawn away. It's a frightening truth that's there in the text. People play a role in the Father's drawing. Individuals are not objects. They're participants in the process. They don't and can't save themselves. They don't and can't initiate their own salvation, but they can yield and respond to grace, or they can reject and refuse and then lose what was freely given. Then comes the clincher. We're almost done. Then comes the clincher for the parable of the soils. Now, I have to put all these threads together because Jesus is telling us, he's saying, here's why the disciples get the explanation and the crowd doesn't. Here's why. 10 to 13. The disciples came and said to him, this is the obvious question. I would have asked the same thing. Why do you speak to them in parables? All they get is the parable. And he answered them, to you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For not been given needs to be explained. For the one who has, more will be given. He will have an abundance. From the one who has not, even what he has will be, there's the verb, taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. They just get the parables. Because seeing, they do not see, and hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. The disciples had responded to Christ's call. They had obeyed Jesus when he said to go and to 
follow him and he would make them fishers of men. They used what they had been given and now they are given more. The Jewish crowd had seen the miracles from Jesus. They had rejected the law, the prophets. Jesus said they had killed the prophets. Jesus told them they hadn't listened carefully to Moses. We looked at that, John 5. He told them they searched the Scriptures but refused to come to him. We looked at that. What happens when people do that over and over and over again? Well, now Jesus is telling life-giving words. There's spirit and life. The crowds, they don't get the words. It's being taken away. I'm amazed at the number of evangelical Christians that have never, ever come to terms with this because it's not a popular light teaching. The last question. Don, this is, this is rough. Doesn't Father God want these people to come? Doesn't he? Jesus tells us. Jesus tells us. It's in 14 and 15. You need to get these words to wrap this up. In their case, Prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has... It didn't happen overnight. It wasn't something God just zapped. This people's heart has grown dull. They've had opportunity, 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 and they never, ever open up their eyes and their ears. What's happened? Well, the heart has grown dull. Their ears, look at just barely hear. Their eyes, they have closed. Lest they sh- what, what, what if somehow they could wake up? Well, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn. See those words? I'd heal them. It's not a lack of desire on my part, Jesus said. God wants them. He wants to reach them. That's his will. He says so. Verse 15, I would, I would. This is what I want to do. I would heal them. God draws. God gives grace. God gives light. But, says Jesus, it can either grow in fullness and momentum or it can turn to deafness and blindness. And just to be clear, I don't believe in eternal insecurity. I don't. I never have to rely on my performance for my safety in Jesus Christ. I just have to believe. I have to keep believing. It's believers who are eternally secure. I rejoice in that truth. And Jesus presses all of us to see the importance of standing ongoingly each moment. Spiritual life is cumulative. And all of this relates to Jesus' closing words about Judas. Last page of my notes. Jesus is very deliberate in the way he describes Judas. We don't know enough. If I, oh, man, if only we could pull back the veil and see some of these things. But he's very deliberate in the words of what's coming for Judas. Look at them. They're in 70 and 71. Jesus answered them, 
Did I not choose you? What's the answer to that question? Did I not choose you, the 12? That's a rhetorical question. Jesus means for them to say, yes, he chose 12. And yet, one of you is a devil. I chose 12, but one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, and he says it again, one of the 12 was going to betray him. I can't, I can't escape the simple, direct force of Jesus' question. Did I not choose you, the 12? And I get the impression that he wants me to answer, yes, you chose 12. You didn't choose 11. You didn't choose 12, sort of, and then choose one for something else. Yes, you prayed. You prayed all night. Gospel's very clear. You prayed all night, and you chose 12. But it takes more than the first nudges of grace. All of us, we open, we close our hearts, we cooperate, we don't cooperate. Judas fell in love with money. Some are careful and repentant. Some are careless and belittle opportunities and squander warnings. I think Judas heard these words from Jesus. I think he heard. I think he knew Jesus was talking about him. And why this carefully pressed warning? Well, we, we just don't know. Why does Jesus sound this alarm? Is it to teach that being chosen by Jesus himself, did I not choose 12? Chosen by Jesus himself isn't the same thing as listening and responding and repenting and following. Apparently, I need to hear that exhortation every day. I don't think... I don't think that Jesus is overly impressed that I pastor a church. All that matters in my life is that I, I keep listening and I keep responding and I keep believing and I keep following. I don't want to have even what I have taken away from me because of my carelessness or rebellion or a hard heart. It's quite a text, isn't it? There's... In two directions, there's a momentum as we respond to God's initiating grace in all of our lives. It works in everyone. He is the light that lights everyone coming into the world. People have the capacity to this, to this. Following gets more light. And, and, and if you're here, if you're here, and you find in your own heart a carelessness at just listening to Jesus. Your devotions. Who you're dating. Who you're living with. Internet pornography. How you spend your money. Little areas where you find you're not listening to Jesus. Here's the deal. And I'd be the worst pastor in Canada if I didn't tell you this. You don't see the end of that journey yet, but it's not going to get better. Those little things, even what he has, gets taken away. Have you ever not encountered someone, and you look at their life and you think of where they once were? It happens in this church. You can picture people, I'm sure. And you think, how in the world did that happen?
tell you how it happened. There was one point where they refused to listen. And it led to another. And they couldn't hear much anymore. And like cataracts, they couldn't see as much anymore. And they didn't see what they were doing was all that bad. And they could explain it. They could find other Christians doing the same thing. And then they quit going to church. That's what people usually do when they get upset about something. And all of a sudden, what they had was taken. I want to stay close to Jesus, don't you? I want to stay close to Jesus.